Thanks a million for coming on, Colm. Um, so full disclosure here, myself and Colm know each other a long time uh, from back in our days as GPOs for Dublin. So Colm is a former Games Promotion Officer for Dublin GEA, current Games Development Administrator for Cork GEA, um, a founder of Coaching the Game uh, and the Little Puckers, and uh, has been involved with several inter-county development squads as well as third level and a huge amount of teams in between. Colm, you are very welcome. Thanks for coming on. Now, I really want to start with the coaching the game stuff. So uh, for anyone listening who doesn't know what it is, it's coaching the GAA ME. Um, and you basically put out an awful lot of resources for free. Uh, you compile an awful lot for various different coaches and stuff. So can you maybe talk us through why you set that up, why you founded it and, and the sort of the main purpose towards it. I know we, we tried to do it in a sort of a, a separate guise previous to that with a couple of uh, friends. And we just I just felt that I was compiling a lot of resources myself as a full-time GPO and GDA at various levels, so from nursery um, through child, youth, adult, and I was compiling resources myself that I just gradually started sharing bit by bit. And with that, um, I suppose uh, as people appreciated it and they got a bit more retweets and more followers, there was, um, I suppose, a need for to keep to keep it up. And I suppose over the course of the last three years, it's, it's proved to be, um, I suppose, something that I, I'm proud of in regards to that I'm sharing an awful lot of content, but, uh, but an awful lot of coaches are getting something out of it. And I suppose the, the, the main reason that I'd have now for doing it would be that I'd love to think that every child will get good quality coaching. Um, so if I can share resources that the average coach might get in some small club in West Cork or Dublin City or wherever it is, if they can get something that they can find useful to make them a better coach, make the kids have a better time, that's essentially what what I'm trying to get to. Uh, it's a very noble cause. Um, could for people who may be not familiar, Colm, could you maybe give us a, a an example or or exactly what you, what you, what's on offer in terms of what what the programs and the activities that you put together? Yeah, like they're they're look as I said, it goes from from nursery to adult level. Um, there'll be a huge array of stuff. I suppose nursery would be the, the the kind of target area where I would try to put most of my stuff with the child and nursery area. Um, there'll be session plans, there'll be activities, there'll be videos um, of stuff that what I would have done and I would have felt were useful and would have passed it on. And going up the age groups, then you'd have session plans for for teenagers. Um, you would have had activities, specific activities to develop a certain aspect of play or a certain technical aspect, um, as well as adults in and session plans again for, I suppose, if you're stuck inside in all weather in January with 20 by 20 and 40 players, what can you do? So things like that. Um, and that would have branched out to the, I suppose, a couple of books that we have out available that kind of one is on nursery, one is on a ball wall activities, one is on uh, games based activities for for youth and adult players, and one would be on the kind of the child, the eight, 13 year old, in developing developing technical skills through games, as opposed to using the traditional drills that we would have probably been exposed to as children, um, but a lot, of, a lot of coaches still use because that's what they use themselves. So just giving coaches an opportunity to see something different and to challenge them in a different area, um, I suppose to, to improve essentially is what, what I'd be hoping for. Yeah, and it sounds like the way you talk about the books from like nursery then to the child, then youth and adult and, and the ball wall and stuff like that. But it sounds like it's a very developmental approach. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah, like with, with everything that, that I'd have would be, I suppose, 
like trying to trying to find a balance. Like every team, every ten year old is different. Some are exceptionally talented. They might have had older brothers and sisters that are playing with all the time. But you'd also have kids um, that might have had that opportunity. And the only time they might hold a hurley or kick a football might be every second week when they go training. So providing activities for coaches that they can go from one stage to the next is very important. So um like we'd all love to go down and watch the cox senior hurlers training or the dublin senior footballers but what they're doing mightn't be relevant to what the needs of the group that the coach has so being able to break down the barriers and break down those kind of uh, roadblocks that they might encounter with actually teaching a skill teaching a hand pass what are we looking out for and what games can we do it so that rather than doing the drills the kids are actually doing it in somewhat enjoyable um situation okay and so you, you have a heavy emphasis on, on game-based activities so Again, like what's the what's the rationale for you behind the game based stuff? So uh, imagine a coach, a, a a new coach or a developing coach is listening in and and is doing their best, and and you're telling them the game based stuff. So why is that so? Why is that in your eyes superior to what we'd commonly call drills? Yeah, I suppose the caveat with that would be that <clears throat> excuse me would be like that there there'd be a discussion out there. The games base is black. Um, Drill base is white. And what we need to do is we need to find a gray area in the middle that suits best suits our, our players and our team. Um, so it's not one or the other, but it's using both to maximize the opportunities. So with game-based, I suppose the, the benefits of game-based, uh, well, other than, let's say, it applies closer to what the match is. So we know every time a kid comes up from the age of six to six, if you tell them, do you want to drill or do you want to play a match? They'll always go for the match. Um, so what we have to do then is start catering for their needs and their wants. So can we replace the drill with an activity that works the technical aspects, but also on a match setting or a game-like setting? Um, by developing activities that will do that, you'd like to think that the kids, the players, enjoy it more. Um, but it also makes the job a lot easier for the coach. I, uh, you know, I use the example of the classic example of three on the inline three and the twenty-one. You run out, you hand pass to the ball to the next person out on the 21, they go the opposite way, hand pass the ball in, and you wait till it comes around to your turn. And I suppose the benefits of that are that, yeah, you're executing the hand pass, but it's done in isolation. There's no one tackling yet, there's no end product, there's no next phase. Um, whereas game-based activities, what they can do once they're organized properly and developed properly is that they're actually developing uh, a whole a holistic view to the player that you're developing if there's a person in front of you, a person behind you, there's a person trying to get the ball off you, there's a person trying to stop the ball going to you. And we need to develop those aspects that are related to the player because, we, like as I said, part of my, my job is I'd meet an awful lot of coaches working with the sevens, eights, nines. And they'd say, oh, gee, we were into training last week, but as soon as they see another team's jersey, it all falls apart. And then you start asking, well, what did you do in training? And he'll tell you, oh, we did, we did this drill and it was great. The intensity was great. And you kind of go, but well, what did they actually learn in the drill? Was there somebody trying to get the ball off them? The same thing that happens in the match. So by implementing game-based activities, and like people think of game-based activities, some think it, it's a match. It's not a match. It can be three-on-three. Three, it can be one-on-one. On one. Um, it can be five-on-one. Those type of activities that will actually give the child a chance to develop the skill the same way that it would in a drill, but with the extra balance, the extra things that will come from being tackled, having to make the decision quicker, um, and stuff like that. So it's just building a more rounded um, skill because, like I said, I suppose the, in the past, people would have seen a skill that, you know, we got to practice the hand pass or practice the kick pass, and we do it in isolation, and the coach wants to see you execute the skill perfectly. But it just does not transfer to the match. Very rarely will a player get a ball uncontested and kick a ball uncontested 
to someone standing still. Um, so we need to build from the match. How can we get that level a bit closer? So it's just building tiers. Um, it's an old Arsene Wenger analogy of building the foundations, then the ground floor, then the first floor, then the second floor. And each year as you master each level, you build the next floor. Um, so rather than doing a kick pass in a straight line for five years in a row from the age of 12 to 17, we're actually at 13, we're putting in a, a person in the middle. At 14, we're putting a person behind them as well. So we're gradually making a little bit harder up to their skill set that they can balance out. Does that make sense? Yeah, I really like the um, Arsene Wenger analogy there you use because in the coaching research, let's say the literature would talk about a scaffolding approach and they'd say, you put a layer of scaffolding and then the next layer and the next layer which is exactly what you just talked about in terms of the the Arsenal Wenger example um just to be clear though you're you're talking about bringing it into a game-based scenario but you're not talking about at the expense of skill development am I right yeah like as I said we'd I'd like to think that a child can master a skill in an in, in an isolated um environment by the age of 10 like a child can do high catch can do uh block down, can do a, a hook kick. They can do all that isolated very early in their age, in their development. And what we need to do once they, once they can kick the ball, we need to start, as I said, building the layers. So if a child has mastered the skill of hand passing the ball uncontested at the age of, uh, like a lot of them could probably do it at six or seven, mm-hmm. but yet they might spend five, six years of doing a drill where they're just hand passing the ball uncontested. And while the coach might be shouting faster and quicker and stuff like that and those kind of cliches it's not actually challenging the child to be any better to to replicate what happens on a pitch so we're doing a game-based activity so let's say a three on one so we've a you as the coach Stephen, and myself and my two players my other two six-year-olds we're trying to keep the ball off you as a coach you know that if i get the ball i might be very advanced you can put a bit, bit more pressure on me you know that if johnny gets the ball he mightn't be as advanced you can take the pressure off, allow him to, to execute it in a game environment of a bit of pressure, but you're doing it to his level. So I suppose the, the knowledge of the coach and his players on what he can actually do with the group and can't do with the group. And that's when I talk about the gray area, but the black and white of coaching versus drills. Sometimes you might need to go back more towards the drills if some players are unable to execute skill. But if they can, you need to start moving that towards a darker, a darker shade of gray that's more appropriate to their skill set. I yeah I I really like that the, the the way you've explained that because I think sort of drills is nearly a dirty word in coaching at the minute whereas it doesn't have to be a, a drill doesn't mean uh like everything is in a straight line or or that I think what we mean uh or what you mean or what I certainly mean is when I mean a dr- when I say I don't like drills I mean a drill that there's seven kids queuing up behind a cone waiting on a go if that makes mm-hmm. sense yeah and like uh, it would like just on that it'd be the same is you know a simple thing with that is that you've got kids for one hour a week and if you've got seven like you said seven in line which we've seen and geez we've seen worse than that as well but like that means that if they did that drill for the whole session they were only active for eight and a half minutes of the of the 60 you know um so where's the benefits so for the coaches it's just simple All, all we're trying to do is we're just trying to offer another way um we're not saying i'm not saying it's better because if 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 i what i'm telling you is better and you have to take it as fact you'll be looking at my resume and you'll be going you have that many all earnings or county titles one you know um but it's just it's just challenging them a little bit differently um and i think i think that's that's what we're, we're trying to get to as coaches is that um, as coach developers is that we we want to challenge the coaches that 
just because you did it that way 20 years ago and the coach you had 20 years ago did it that way as well in the same club, that doesn't mean you still have to do it. Um, so, so I said, just I, I won't say I won't use the word enlightening, but challenging their own thoughts um, is important. You mentioned that the coach's knowledge of his or her own players is really important in how they adapt a game or, or a drill with in a training session. How 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 important is that in terms of planning a session, in terms of adapting a session, in terms of uh. Pl- I suppose, setting goals for a team or a group that you're involved with. How important is that knowledge of your players to, to be able to do all these things? Yeah, I suppose it would differ a small bit on the, on the various age groups. Um, but but let's say we'll work with the lower side of it first, so the, youth, the child and nursery side of things is we personally, I'd love every coach at the plan that this year we're going to work on introducing these three new skills. So rather than the the fellow who played senior football for the club or senior hurling coming down training his own son or daughter at the age of six and trying to get them solo in the ball and skills that mightn't be age appropriate um, would the club have an actual plan in place for them that you know that at under six we're going to work on the, in hurling we're going to work the frontal block we're going to work the strike on the run uh, ground strike on the run and the, we might do the let's say hook as well introduction to the hook so if you know that those three skills you're working in over the course of the year then you can start developing each one over a number of, of weeks. So let's say just use the, the let's say the solo there now that we do ask kids, a lot of coaches do ask kids to do it sort of six, seven, and yet they come to under eight and go games and they're limited to one solo. And we put an awful lot of time into that one skill. Um, so it's important for coaches that they actually know what, what age appropriate skills. So what, we, what I mean by age appropriate is something that the best kid can achieve at the start of the year, but by the end of the year, the weakest kid can also achieve it. Um, so rather than trying to teach all our five-year-olds or six-year-olds how to do the solo, when some of them mightn't be able to kick the ball, someone mightn't be able to catch the ball properly, um, we we would delay that to a different time. So having a plan in place that you actually know what you're working on throughout the year will make your individual weekly session plans a lot easier. So let's say if, if we do name three skills that we're going to work on for the year, you know going up to the pitch every week, they are the three skills we're going to target. Now, the beauty of hurling football is that if we're working on a kick um, and if I kick the ball to you, what skill are you going to be doing? So if I kick the ball to you, you're either going to be catching it and if you don't catch it, you'll be picking it up um, and you might be doing a low catch, a high catch or a chest catch. So various things. In hurling, it's even more complicated. If I hit the ball to you for, a, let's say, a nine-year-old, you're going to be controlling it, you're going to be catching it, you're going to be blocking it down. Um, there's a number of different skills. So every time when I say we're only teaching three skills, we're focusing on those three skills from a skill development perspective, but the other skills will come complementary to it. Um, so what I'd advise would be that the important thing would be that coaches actually have a plan for the year. Um, uh, so I suppose, I mean, what skills do we want to improve on? Or if, if they're in skill tests, um, what skill tests, what level do they, would they like every child to get to? Um, and then breaking it down lower than that, then that each week we're focusing on this activity. So, what three stages? And again, if you're talking about, uh, let's say, the punt kick, have we got different stages the same way I said about foundation, first floor, second floor? Now, once we master the foundation, what's, what's the next stage? What activity actually challenges that? And then if we master that, what activities actually challenge the next phase? So having a plan in place that you know what skills you want to improve, it makes it easy to coach to actually, I suppose, plan. Because rather than having a blank canvas going, what are we going to do tonight? And you could do a hundred different things. If you know you can only do 
15 different things, it makes life a lot easier for a coach to actually have a plan in place. And I suppose that's down the lower side of it. As you go up, up the ages, I'd like to think that they'd be, um, look, they'd be talking about uh, athletic development, um, the teenage groups, that there's a plan in place for that. Um, but you'll find that a lot of counties have plans out there. Like you'll see it at the moment with all the information being shared um, in the last couple of years, that a lot of counties have, have full-time athletic development coaches basically working as GDAs um, that'll share an awful lot of information which is which could be replicated in the club on a, on a lesser scale so having athletic development but also the tactical and technical tactical side tactical and team play side of it how are you going to develop that over the course of the year um, so again rather than being reactive that oh, last week in the match we were very bad at this let's do let's let's work on that actually have a plan that I suppose like you have a child from the age of six to 18 before they go play adult hurling or adult football and you've 12, 12 or 13 years of actually developing them. And if you're trying to develop everything week by week on a reactive state because of something happened last week's match, you never really give them a chance to fully develop. So having a plan that works from a club plan or a county plan that works from six to 16 or six to 18 and have the little plans inside in it um, makes it very important. So, Colm, everything you just said there makes absolute perfect sense to me. And uh, I suppose a lot of people may not. Um, it's a delayed gratification that we're looking for. Not so much that we win the under nine uh, West Cork League or the, the Dublin League or whatever that may be. It's that we firstly bring them all through to minor if we can and, and, and beyond into adult and, and keep them fit and healthy. And th- those few that are elite may go on and, and represent county and stuff like that. How do we get that message to the coaches to that it has to be that long-term outlook, that that long-term uh, goal is the development of, of the kid, of the player? And have you had much resistance to that over the years? And that's the million-dollar question. Um, I, I, I think, look, it's, I suppose, what, what we would find um, would be that coaches who actually come around the second time, so let's say, I have a child, I coach him from under five to under 12, um, and I have another child come in six, seven years later, and I go back with that second child, or third child, or fourth child, whatever it is. We find that those coaches are usually much more um, of that way of thinking, of wearing this for the long year. We're not going to be winning a county every year. We're not going to be producing all-stars. Um, so trying to get that message in to the coach who comes around the first time, the novice coach who is going through the system the first time, it's actually very difficult um, because like the same way as a player like we have to think of the coaches uh in the same way we, we treat players that if we treat a player who comes in at under six and it's his first year and seven it's his second year coaches are the same a lot of coaches it's their first year in there and we're kind of a lot of time we expect these coaches to be i suppose to to know it all just because they're coaching um whereas what they're actually doing is they're in a very beginner stage of their actual development so what we'd expect like what you mentioned there and obviously that's the what we'd all love would be that they'd all be playing the long game, as you said, um, and developing players for the club. But I think it's it's just coach education. It's listening to people like yourself and listening to the other coaches and the people you've had on these on the podcast who, when they're saying that the goal is player retention long-term and keeping a player um, to stay within the club as a player or an administrator or registrar or fundraiser in 20 years' time, that should be the goal. And I think... A lot of coaches, in fairness, I would say they're very much coming around to that way of thinking. Um, the, the instant gratification, as you said, like we go to the first blitz of the year for the under eights, 
and you'll see coaches coming off and their huddles going, yeah, we won three or we won our three games. But they need that little bit to keep them, I suppose, involved. They have to have something that they want to do. Like it has to be something for them as well. Um, just greater knowledge out there that's saying, that's like uh, there's not point one percent of this team will play for Cork at a, at senior level. Um, just one percent of our club players will play a development squad between thirteen and seventeen. Um, so being able to, I suppose, pass that information back and I suppose highlight the values of what the club are actually trying to do. And it's it's I suppose it's very easy for people to get caught up in what the GA is about. Like the GA thirty years ago was having teams in the pitch play matches, whereas the GA now is. As you're aware, completely different. There are so many clubs, as I mentioned about registrars, fundraising. There's so many areas that people who mightn't have been good hurlers or footballers, who might be great in those areas, they might have been lost because a coach had a win-all mentality 12 years ago. Um, so we need to be able to break down those barriers that, yeah, if a fella isn't the best player in the world, we still have to give him game time because that player he might stay with the club or he mightn't if he doesn't so be it but if he does and be it as the player with the third team or the fourth team or be the fellow who starts coaching the under 12s when he's 17 or becomes a referee in the club they're all important aspects as well um so being conscious of that as a club i think clubs are much more proactive in that area Uh, but as i said i don't know the answer of being able to persuade that first that first coach um about those the instant gratification as you said other than just trying to educate and hear the top coaches talking about it because they'd, if Brian Cody started saying it and Jim Gavin, they'd start listening. Um, but it needs to come from those kind of people, I think. Come here. Um, you've talked about coach education a few times. Again, you've been around the block a long time in this now in terms of delivering courses, of being on various different um, workshops, modules, etc. How far have we come in terms of the coach ed, do you think? How far are we? Are we nearly there? Are we getting better? Is there still a lot of work to do? Oh, there's, there's always work to do in the coach education. I, I don't ever think we, we'll get there. Um, and I think, you know, it, it's something for, I don't think any coach will ever admit that he's there. So until every coach is still willing to learn, there's always scope for more. Um, I think that the difference between now and coaches of the past, so the coaches we would have had as children ourselves, is is that the, the opportunities for humongous now. Um, like I always I love using the story and... I hope my coach doesn't hear this, but when we were under 14, we'd one coach. And, you know, when boys 14, they're kind of getting to that awkward age. And, you know, they can, sessions can get a little tougher and stuff like that. But our coach probably had two or three footballs. And a couple of sessions in that year, just it was that particular year, he would have halfway through the same training session, hopped in the car, drove home, left us there. Now, what we would have done is we would have went away and just put, started, played a match. We would have split two teams. Played as fair a match as we could for until the parents came and collected us. But what he didn't have that coaches now have is he's we've got opportunities of podcasts, we've got webinars, we've got books, we've got resources, we've got coaching conferences, we got workshops, we got full-time coaching staff that we can ring whenever we need to. Um, the opportunities for every coach now is huge in comparison to what they were doing before. So I said that coach 20 years ago, the poor fella, he was only doing the same stuff that he was showed as a player probably 10 years previous to that. Um, that coach did 
20 years previous to that. So the opportunities for coaches now with, with the internet um, to improve is, is, is really is huge. And as I said, when you see how proactive um, the GA and the Camogie and ladies football and the provinces and individual counties and you keep breaking down and there's just so much resources out there I said the problem now is actually taking all the information and processing it yourself to to get something that will resemble each individual coach's philosophy but there's definitely so much stuff out there um but it's evolving it's evolving big time as i said like when we started as full-time gpos in dublin the fondue pack was just out i know you're looking at that and a lot of those activities are outdated um so it's evolving constantly and it will always evolve. But I think that the, the opportunities for any coach out there now are much more superior than they ever were before. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, yeah, I never thought of it that way in terms of the, the offering that's out there from the various sports and, and the podcasts and the books, etc. Um, I just want to touch on, uh, Colm, you talk about different initiatives being set, started up by clubs and the GAA and something that's something that you set up yourself down in Cork, uh, the social hurling. Um, so you might firstly explain briefly what it is and could you maybe go into the the mindset? It's slightly off coaching, but I'm just interested into the mindset of why you set it up. Yeah, I, again, I suppose like like the one thing I'd always say about about like my job as a full-time GDA and a GPO in Dublin as well um, would be that I, I reckon I get about five years experience of coaching in that one playing season um, in that we're dealing with nursery child youth adult we're dealing with any problems that they might have and whatnot where that leads to then is that I suppose my, my way of coaching and the way I see hurling football is very much different than it was 12 13 years ago um where it would have been ultra competitive in nearly every avenue of it and trying to win matches and win championships, win counties. Whereas when I'm 36 years of age now and I'm after playing four years of junior B hurling below and killer um, and a few years of junior C and the things that I actually enjoy was going down, sitting in the dressing before the match, playing the match. No, some days we got beaten like two years ago, we got beaten by 10 goals and two championship matches. Um, but it, it didn't hurt me as much as it would have 10 years ago. Um, but what I enjoyed as well is inside in the dressing room after the matches and after the training sessions, and you're actually chatting to people and you got the social aspect and you're actually catching up with friends that you might never talk to outside of the hurling pitch. So one particular fella who would have played underage with me the whole way through, would we wouldn't have kept in touch as friends um, just with me moving away and whatnot. Um, but I would have enjoyed his company after the games. And and what we what I did was that okay, I, I love I love playing hurling football. I'd imagine everyone that's playing it loves playing it, and a lot of people who are retired and can't play it anymore love play, love loved playing it. What we tried to do with social hurling then was just make it accessible for the likes of me that once I can't play with an adult team or not good enough to play with competitive hurling football anymore, um, or not interested in the competitive side, was actually have something that I can go and play. Um, so we we started the social hurling about a year and a half ago. Um, just on a trail run and football as well and we were getting we were getting huge numbers we we're getting about 60 players every night um at the park of Creeve. now the attractiveness of park of Creeve just being opened on the astroturf was was a drawing factor um but we kept it going and it sprouted up over the country now and there's groups in belfast in lurgan in derry and galway kilkenny and limerick um and there's loads of groups in dublin doing it and what it did what it did was it just gave people who able to play more or not 
interest or not not possible um, to get back clean. And it, it probably goes back to the earliest form of the GA that when when it was set up in, in 84, it was about having a community culture and community spirit and keeping the culture alive and stuff like that. But, but, but just going out and playing the game um, and that the winning of a championship game or the winning of a league game wasn't all that important. So what we did was we provided an opportunity every week to, to be matches available, um, just rock up, pay the whatever money was needed to be paid to cover the cost of the pitch and just play away for an hour. And, and it's just been, it's been brilliant. As I said, it's been something that I wasn't too sure how it would work. I know there was talk of it. People have talked about it for years, about a, a hurling and football version of five side and tag rugby. Um, but it's just something that's just taken off and, and the people that take part in it absolutely love it. Like they, every week we'd have, we'd have a few new people come up every week and there'd be fellas texting if they couldn't make it. Kids were too late going to bed and whatnot. But it just gave us an opportunity to play hurling without a pressure. And Colm, of a, sorry, yeah. sorry to jump in. I'm just really curious. So, so that enjoyment of just going out to play, do you think that um, is helpful in terms of your own coaching to remind you of why you actually started to play in the first place? Yeah, I, like, I think it, it, it interlinked probably at the right time in life for me, you know. Um, like I'd see that the closest, the closest thing social hurling resembles and social football is under eight, where you go out, you play a couple of blitzes in the morning, you play three 20-minute games, and you go home. There's no league table. There's very few managers shouting negatively on the sideline. But having that kind of just being able to enjoy the game for what it is, um, it, I suppose it was really enjoyable for me to, to be able to do it. But every week when you see fellas coming and you got fellas coming in their late 50s and you got fellas who haven't played hurling since primary school and what probably put them off, the people who had the, 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 the ones who didn't play since primary school, they're probably the ones that had the bad experience where the coach was win all. That, that that player probably wasn't going great at the time. He probably sat on the sideline for six weeks and then said, no, I'm not going back playing anymore. So now all of a sudden we got these people coming back just because they're able to play for the enjoyment of it. Um, so with the coaching, I suppose, with the young side of it, like with the, the smallies, as I call them, the nursery group, is that kind of a joy, the unbridled joy of going playing. Um, you don't need an opponent, but you just get the chance to play. Um, so as I said, my version of play, at this age, is social hurling, um, whereas their version of play might be Rob the Nest or um, Rob the Nest or Bulldog or something like that. Um, but the same for adult level. That like I know that there's there's a number of player number of players in every club that are kind of reluctant about going down the pitch for training. They're reluctant because they mightn't have a chance of winning the championship, but they're kind of made to go down because they're one of the better players and the people are on their case constantly. And they have to enjoy it too. So from from that perspective, it's something we'd always try to do with the, with the adults. Let's say with the, the senior team at home, as we try to do a crossbar challenge or something like that at the end of every training session, just to bring back that bit of fun. That it's not all serious, it's not be all and end all. But we can just go out and have a bit of fun um, and enjoy ourselves playing playing the games that we started because they were fun. Yeah, and I think that's uh, that's. Yeah, I, I couldn't have summed it anything up better myself. I just think that we often lose sight as coaches of that of that that element that, that it's supposed to be fun and we're supposed to enjoy it. And that comes in various guises, but I think that is really, really important focus for us to have. So Colm, having gone through all that, what would you class as a successful coach? A successful coach 
to me, and I suppose the same thing I say to every coach at underage level in all the clubs I've been working at, um, would be how many players started with you and how many players are there at the end of the year. So retention, player retention is 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 the number one, but player retention from the age of six to twenty-six to thirty-six to forty-six is also important. Um like I, I don't think every coach, well, you all want to win a county and we all want to win the championships and stuff like that. It's if you set your stall out that you want to win the county and anything other than that is a failure, then you're going to be very, very disappointed. Like I said, there's 32 teams, 34 teams in the All-Ireland Senior Football Championship this year. Just because, let's say Tipperary a couple of years ago, Clare a couple of years ago when they got to the Super 8s, just because they didn't win the All-Ireland doesn't make them a failure. What they achieved to get that far was probably a huge success for them. So if we're, if we're going to be successful about what happens on the pitch, we're going to have a lot of disappointed coaches and a lot of coaches retiring very young. But it's how much did the kids and the players actually give them a chance to play to their maximum level? And did they come back? So that's what I'd be looking for on a successful coach is that did he give them a chance to be their best and did, he get, and did they keep coming back? That's yeah, that's a great answer. And uh, I, I focus on retention. I don't think you can go too far wrong because just kids, particularly with kids, they just won't come back if they're not enjoying it. No. Um, Colm, uh, we're nearly there. Uh, you didn't, I'm really uh, appreciative of your time. Um, the best book or resource uh, that you would recommend to coaches or something that you might really uh, like yourself? I'm, I, I wouldn't say there's anyone in particular, but what I would say to, co- to coaches is listen to as many podcasts as, as you can, listen to, watch as many webinars, read as many books. Um, I suppose follow follow the coaches that are the, the renowned coaches out there and see what do they do that you could take for yourself. Uh, like it's, it's kind of like, um, as someone said to me a long time ago about history was that don't just take one person's reasoning as that's the way to do it. Take as many different opinions as you can and form your own way of going forward. Um, because if you, if I want to go out and start copying Phil Jackson or Alex Ferguson, I won't be able to do it because he's got a skill set that I don't have. Um, but what I might be able to do is take one or two of the things from him and one or two of the things from him and one or two of the things to him that are actually applicable to me and build your own thing like that. So what I would say is there's no one thing, but there's lots of things out there. So pick and choose um, from, from as many as you can, but be open-minded that just because some coach you mightn't have liked his whatever way he was portrayed by the media or whatever, um, still see what did he do because there was still something that made him successful and can you take one of those traits to, to help yourself? Yeah, and it's, I, I think I'm nearly sure it was Jim Gavin that said it before. He said he, he classed himself as a magpie and he'd take, take bits and pieces from, from books or from other people, watching other people and a really, really similar approach. Last question, Colm. Uh, your top tips for developing coaches? Um, I would say, uh, I suppose, and the last one would be would be main tips for really as much stuff. But I, I, one thing I would say, and it's probably one thing that I'd look back on myself and I would have passed it on to my younger self would be to, to be empathetic towards everybody. So if you're a coach, put yourself in the, in the head of the child that is a sub put yourself in the child of the head that you're taking off after 10 minutes. Um, and that goes at every level. Um, like I said, I've been a coach at developing squads and stuff like that. You'd be down to Tony Forrestal and uh, all of a sudden you're in a semi-final and a final and you just two players haven't got game time and you don't give them game time just so you can win it for my own ego. 
um, like those kind of mistakes I would have made in the past. So I said, treat others how you would like them to treat you and, and be empathetic about what their situation is. So I said, don't just think, yeah, let's do it for the team. There might be a child there who might not have been able to come to training or might be 10 minutes late. Put yourself in their shoes. What, if, whatever you, what, how you treat them, you need to be conscious of yourself. So I would ask every coach that they're conscious of the, the players that they're dealing with um, and put them, put yourself into their shoes for a bit and see how it works out. And I think that ties in really nicely with what you said at the beginning, Colm, about the knowledge, the coach having a knowledge of his or her players and, and by bringing that element in as well, it, it shows a good two-way street. Colm, you've been brilliant. Um, really, really enjoyed the chat. I think there's loads there for people to take from, both in terms of their their philosophy, but also in practical practical terms. Uh, certainly some standouts for me that... Um, the ethos that every child deserves quality coaching or, or that's what you're trying to do the developmental approach that you take there's just the very fact of getting to know your players and building those levels as you as you progress through the importance on coach education and the really big one that jumps out for me is that that not to lose focus on the enjoyment that just playing brings so it brought back to light for you in terms of the social hurling but that i think that should really help us uh, as coaches not to lose focus of that for uh, kids w- when we are coaching um, Colm if anyone listening wants to find out more about coaching the game or any of the other uh, initiatives that you have where's best to find you yeah um, the Twitter would probably be the easiest uh, coaching the game would be at G-A-A-M-E coaching so at game coaching with two A's and uh, the little puckers is uh, at little puckers and there's no E in puckers so again on Twitter um, people will catch me there and if they want any anything further than that they can message me there and uh get in touch for other areas apologies Colm I never touched on the, the do you want to explain the little puckers really quick oh, yeah it's just something we just set up um just during the coronavirus we were a bit of, a bit of time available but conscious the kids weren't getting out to play as much so what we're trying to do is just give home activities that parents can do with it's only aimed at three to five year olds very very basics of hurling but just putting the hurling in the hand um and introduce them to a few things and there's a few magic tricks in it as well uh, to keep the kids entertained excellent a man of many talents Colm thanks a million for coming no on problem. thanks Stephen thank you for listening to the show we hope you can take something from it that will help with your own coaching journey as always you can listen or subscribe on Apple Podcasts Spotify and SoundCloud and you can find us on all social media channels at Bubble Coaching on Twitter Facebook and Instagram please get in touch because we would love to hear from you The show was produced by Niall Williams and brought to you by the Coach Education Department of the Camogie Association. Thanks again for listening. Till next time. Bye.